Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. C-13 Originals. Go to the hotel that they dumped us in right now if you want. When families are put on the witness protection program, they get relocated and given a new place to live. We are coming up on the hotel. In our case, it was a room it's right up here. at a place called the Esquire Motor Inn. Now they have redone this hotel a little bit. It's still a shithole. Yep. This is the hotel they put us in. It's actually in a lot nicer shape than it was when we were here. But I mean, it looks a lot better. We stayed right up here. It's not like the movies. This is where they put you. This is reality. This is where the U.S. Marshals put you when you enter the witness protection program. Right back there. And there were bugs in that room and it was disgusting. This is a total tweaker motel. They're all peeking out. Hi. What do you work for? Me? Yeah. God, I'm just curious. Say hi to God for me. Yeah, don't worry, you'll get to see him sometime. <laughs> I'm not scared of you. I work for him. Uh-huh. Have a good day, you guys. Sorry we scared you. Okay. So this is where the marshals put us. Yeah. <laughs> I guess now you can understand why I might be a little bit upset at where they put us. Cause uh, yeah, you know, the crowd, the people haven't changed. I guess I could have handled that different. That's just my personality. I try, I really do. I try to, my mother always told me, you attract more bees with honey than vinegar. But unfortunately I'm, full of vinegar. After me, my mom, and my younger brother and sister were taken in the middle of the night to a safe house in Tampa, Florida, we were reunited with my father and placed into WITSEC, or witness security. We were given new identities. They let us keep our first names, but we were no longer the Crouch family. We were the Taylors. And so we needed a new home where we could begin our new lives. So my parents were both asked to list three places, anywhere in the country where they'd want to be relocated. My mom chose Florida, California, and Hawaii. And my dad chose his old stomping grounds, Louisiana and Texas, and also Florida. But what they didn't know was that when the U.S. Marshals ask you these questions, it's because they're trying to figure out where those who would want to harm you might think to look for you. That's how they decide where not to move you. And that's how we ended up at the Esquire Motor Inn, out here in the middle of nowhere, the perfect place to hide a witness, Billings, Montana. Without the light, or oh, the darkness come. Hold through the night, Shadows will run mm-hmm. Fend off the enemy Sing out the jubilee 
I'm Jackie Taylor, and this is Relative Unknown. This is where my brother-in-law works, my sister's husband. I got him that job. So this is downtown Billings. Billings is surrounded by seven different mountain ranges. Much of the city is bordered by huge sandstone cliffs called the rims that look like sheer vertical walls, hundreds of feet high. The closest big city, Denver, is more than 500 miles away. People don't end up in Billings just by accident. That's why the marshals chose to put us here in January of 1982. So one of the most disturbing things to me is the idea in the media of what witness protection is all about. It's glamorized in Hollywood in a sense. Take the scene from Goodfellas, you know, Ray Liotta. I'm an average nobody. Get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. You know, he's got this great life in the suburbs and a house and a car and yada yada. That's not how it is. They make you promises and they dump you. My family and I were dumped in one of the worst hotels that I have ever come across in my life. We were up on the second floor in a corner and there were bars on the windows. And I remember looking out the window and we could see the rail yard. We could hear trains all night long. There were big snow piles from the plows. There was a lot of snow in Billings. We had no car. We walked everywhere in the middle of winter. It was a shell shock to us coming from Florida to this cold climate and not knowing where we were. And it was just completely different. I didn't like it. I wanted to go back to Florida. Nobody really wanted to be in Montana at all. I remember starting the new school and we had just started a new school again for the second time in a year and I had to make friends again and I missed my grandparents, I missed my cousins, I wanted to call Papa, I wanted to call Grandma. I wanted my old family back. I didn't want to live in this dirty fucking hotel that the marshals stuck us in. After two months living at the motel, my mom got a nursing job, working nights like usual, and we were finally able to move into a house. Jackie, you gotta do a little dance or something. You can't just stand around. This is not just an ordinary camera. This is a movie camera. Can we go downstairs? Come on. Hey, listen, Cecil. I'll be Cecil D. DeMills. You be the actress. I'll be the director and producer of this movie. You just get over there and be the actress. This is my dad and I at our house in Billings. Jackie Ann. What? Hey, Jackie, I think you're going to like this. He's got his video camera mounted on a tripod in the living room, and it's pointed at his favorite armchair, where he's sitting and smoking a cigarette while I'm sitting on his lap. I might miss your birthday party. That night, he told my younger brother and sister and I that he was leaving in the morning and he didn't know when he'd be coming back. This is the last night we were ever all together. The night before he left, we made hours and hours of videotapes. He told us children that he was going on a boat to work, that we wouldn't be able to call him, and he would call us every two to three months when he could, when he got back to land but we could write him as many letters as we wanted to. He just said he was working on a boat. So we didn't ask questions. We were just happy that daddy was going to go and work and we were going to miss him, but we we're proud of him for going and working. <laughs> he loves you. Daddy, am I hey, looking at you? Soon you'll be nine. I know. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Soon you'll be 10. 
soon you'll be loving. Soon you'll be 12. Happy birthday to you. you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday. Merry Christmas. Oh. Just think your children might be watching this one day. Daddy, love you. I love you, too. I love you, too. Sure gonna miss you. Sure gonna miss you, too. I'm eight years old here. The very next day, my dad left to begin serving time in different prisons and testifying in different trials. I didn't see him again for 24 years. When we first arrived in Billings, we were given a monthly stipend through the WITSEC program, but it was hardly enough to get by. And once my mom started working, we never saw another dime from the government. We were on our own now. When my mother was approached by the U.S. Marshals, she was faced with a very difficult decision to make. Did she want to stay in Florida with us children and continue this life by herself and chance us being murdered by the Hells Angels? Or did she want to rejoin my father that was now a federally protected witness and enter into the witness protection program? she's being told that she's going to be killed unless she rejoins him and cuts off all ties with every single person she knows and moves away to a place that she doesn't even know where they're going to move her with no support whatsoever. No support from family members, no support from friends. She's got to start a new life with this monster and her children. There was no counseling. There was no health care established. Nothing. There were no services in place for us. My mother had nobody to talk to. She was stuck out here with nobody. Especially after my father went to prison. And nobody checked on her mental well-being. She wasn't supposed to tell not even a counselor that she was on the witness protection program. None of us kids knew what was actually happening, of course. We knew we were on the witness protection program. We didn't know what it was, but we knew we weren't supposed to tell anybody. We knew it had something to do with why our names were changed. Because we were hiding from the Hells Angels. It was ingrained within me to be afraid of motorcycles now. I was really afraid of the sound of a motorcycle. I was no longer looking to see if the motorcycle had my father on the back seat, but if it had a Hell's Angel patch on the back of their coat. I literally would wet my pants on occasion because I was so afraid of motorcycles. The louder the motorcycle, the more fear. The closer it got, the more afraid I got. I remember being really little and just crumbling with fear if I heard that roar anywhere. I would run in the house or in the school or wherever I was and hide because I knew now that I had to hide for motorcycles. I thought that they were going to get us. So, um, yeah, I was hiding from the bad guys. Jackie and I have known each other since she moved to Billings. We went to elementary school, junior high, and some of high school together. We did Girl Scouts together. So we would do a lot of meetings at her mom's house. This is Leanne, one of my oldest friends here in Billings. Her mom was very protective of the children. A little bit more than we felt of our parents, because our parents would let us go out and ride our bikes and stuff, and she really had to touch base with mom a lot, that type of stuff. But we never knew what was going on. I guess we didn't really question it. We just thought it was strange. Back in the days, in the 80s, it was always strange to have a single parent. That was one thing, like, my family would bring up was, 
oh, she's a single mom, you shouldn't go over there, that type of stuff. They always worried about not having enough parents in the home. When Jackie was in elementary school, she was kind of timid, um, tiny little thing. She would get bullied quite a bit. The kids would just kind of pick on her and push on her, that type of stuff, pull on her hair, make fun of how she looks. I think she was a target because just coming into the school at that point in time, in second grade, because you know how it works with elementary schools. Sometimes a new kid comes in and they're the cool kid, and sometimes they're not. I was so reserved and I was kind of afraid of the world and I didn't like to talk to a lot of people about things because I wasn't supposed to talk to a lot of people about things. So I think that I was viewed as kind of an easy target for bullies. There was a girl that would follow me home and throw rocks at the back of my head and I would just cover my head up and try to get home as quick as I could. There was another little girl who would stand on her front stoop when I walked by her house and make fun of my hair, my clothes, my shoes, everything. And I just took it. I started taking my mother's cigarettes and cigarette butts right around 11 or 12. Um, I remember finding cigarettes in a gutter on the way to school and I smoked them. <laughs> I mean, they weren't in a pack. They were just cigarettes laying on the ground and I smoked them. That's how desperate I was to put anything in my body that I could to make me feel better. I used to take packets of Equal and line them up and snort Equal when I was like 10 and 11 years old just because I wanted to snort something because that's what my dad did. I just missed him. And I started asking my mom about him a lot. Well, it drove my mother crazy that we thought that my father was working so hard on a boat and that we looked forward to getting his letters from the boat and that we wanted to call him on the boat and that he was going to call us from land when he got done working on the boat. Well, she became sick of hearing that and she decided that we needed to hear the truth. So one day when I was about 10 years old, I was taken out of class to see a man named Tom Farrow. Farrow was my school psychologist and the only sort of counseling I had access to at that age. I love talking with him every week. But this time when I got to his office, my younger brother and sister were there along with my mother. She told us all that my father was not working on a boat, that my father was in prison for murdering somebody. I'll never forget the look on Tom Farrow's face. He knew that we were being hurt, and he couldn't really stop my mother from saying it that way. It just came out, and I don't think that she told him her intentions of how she was going to tell us. And he did look shocked, um, sad for us, because I remember looking at his face and looking at her, and my whole world just got ripped apart. My dad's a fucking murderer. I thought he was working on a boat. Oh my God, what the hell? My dad doesn't murder people. I love my dad, but no, now I find out he's a murderer. Now what? Her mother was quite blunt about everything. She just really spilled the beans in front of the kids, and you can see the devastation on Jackie's face. This is Tom Farrow. You know, she had an image of her father, and it was an image of the, a man that was a good man, that loved her, that cared about her, and she was expecting him to be back any time. And that image is shattered, and then you've got to pick up the pieces. I felt horrible for Jackie, knowing that 
she had to find out that kind of information about her father without any ability to process it very well. You know, what do you do with that information? You have no ability to talk to your father. You have no ability to know if he loves you, if he doesn't love you, what's the truth, what's not the truth. You know, you keep hoping and wishing that it's not going to be this way or that you're going to have a father that loves you. How do you get through the trauma of a father who did the things he did? It can really rock your world for a long time. And when she found out that he was a murderer and that he was never coming back, that was devastating to her. And it can be a lifelong devastation. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you could always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. How could a member of an organized crime group come forward and testify and live? I mean, they would murder him before if they knew he was going to testify or murder him after he testified and indeed might even murder other members of his family. This is the voice of Gerald Schur. Schur is known as the godfather of the witness security program and is credited with being its founder. WITSEC has been operating since the mid-1960s, but was formally established in 1971. Since then, according to the U.S. Marshals' website, the program has given new identities to 8,600 protected witnesses, including almost 10,000 of their family members, and relocated them around the country. Here, Gerald Schur is talking about how and why they decide where to relocate a witness. The first thing you would look at is your workload. You have witness security inspectors throughout the country, but they can only handle so many witnesses at one time and handle their needs. So you would look at the workload, and uh, and uh, so that would eliminate certain cities. Then you would try to find one in which they would be comfortable. Uh, that's an interesting perspective from Gerald Schur, but... I have found that nothing is further from the truth. This is author, professor, and journalist Bill Mushi. In 1996, Mushi wrote a groundbreaking series about the Witness Protection Program for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. The notion that these people are put in a situation that is inviting and good for all involved is absurd from the research I've done in talking to many, many people in that program. None of them feel like they were dealt fairly with. In fact, most of them tell me that was the beginning of when they realized this program was no good. Mushi's series called Protected Witness provided an unvarnished look inside the notoriously secretive witness protection program. But really, his investigation began in the early 1980s. Well, it all started when I was covering an organized crime case in Pittsburgh. And I've spent a great deal of time writing about the kingpin of the organization. He was a particularly vicious guy. One time, some guy owed him money for drugs, so he tore his shirt off, tied him to a table, put molasses on his chest, and put a tarantula on his chest. And then the guy paid his bill. During the course of that, I was doing a live shot for a television station, and some old man came running up, and this old man screams, You're dead! And I said something like, 
F you. And uh, the producer in my ear yelling, F me, we're on the air. Then the families of this guy just threatened me repeatedly, tried to feed me drugs, tried to set me up with hookers. After one trial date, I was in a little bar around the corner from my apartment. All of a sudden, these two drop-dead beautiful women come in the bar. The one comes up to me and says, I saw you on television today. You're a celebrity. And next thing I know, we're drinking shots of whiskey, and they're rubbing my head, and, you know, uh, I'm not the most beautiful. I'm not a Robert Redford and all the president's men. So we're getting pretty loaded, drinking shots and beers, and they're whispering in my ear all these things they're going to do to me, and... I was a young single guy at the time, and I'm like thinking, this is awesome. And then uh, it something dawned on me. I'm going, what in the hell would these women want with me? You know. <laughs> and uh, I finally came to my realization it was this gangster who set it all up. So I sneaked into the bathroom, then went out the back door and said, I'm getting the hell out of here. Some guy in a Lincoln followed me home, didn't do anything. But uh, the next day in court, the two chicks were in there. I was horrified during the whole process that this guy finally gets convicted and sentenced to three life prison terms. Lo and behold, several years later, I get a phone call from this guy. He had been locked up for eight years, and he says to me, Bill, they're going to let me go. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And he says, I'm going to testify against the mob. So he testifies and he fed me the story all along, so I had several front-page stories based on the guy whose family wanted to kill me. And finally, I get to the point where the trials are all over with, and I'm waiting for this guy to get released and wondering what he was going to do to me when he got released, when he calls me again and said, hey, the government welched on a deal, and now they're going to stick me in the Federal Witness Protection Program for the rest of my life. I said, didn't you get it in writing? And he said, well, it was the FBI. Why do I need to get anything in writing? They wouldn't lie to me. And I said, well, now you know. And uh, that started a trek where he started telling me how screwed up the Federal Witness Protection Program was and how they welched on deals with almost everyone in the program, and not only them, but their family members who went along with them into this program. In other words, they basically said that once the government used you, they would abuse you. And then he started feeding me other people, and I decided to go full bore after it, and that's what I did. Eventually, Mushi was in contact with enough people who were willing to speak to him about their experience in WITSEC that he was able to write his Protected Witness series. His reporting revealed a deeply flawed organization with almost no oversight or accountability that seemed to harm more people than it claimed to protect. Here's a CBS News report from 1982. The same year my family and I were relocated to Billings. The Justice Department's witness protection program has been plagued with troubles. Witnesses who have committed crimes under their government identities. Relocated witnesses abandoned, broken, jobless. Children separated from their parents. The Reagan administration says that it plans to greatly reduce the number of witnesses to be relocated but it remains to be determined whether the convictions obtained under the program are worth the problems it creates. That's the theme that I saw in my research was that once people got used by the government, I heard over and over and over again that they were just cast aside. Now, this is a real nice house. It's one of the nicest we've ever moved anyone like you into. Hey, Linda, what do you think? I always promised you a nice house somewhere in America. Let's not get carried away, okay, Vinny? Uh, it's going to be a lot easier if you two start calling each other Terry and Todd. It's a nice house, Terry, okay? No, you're Terry and he's Todd. The Hollywood version of the Witsec program is amusing, but it has no basis in reality. The idea is that people would go into business with the government, and then after they testified, they would be given a new Social Security number and relocated with their family, and they'd be started on a new life, an anonymous existence, which is altruistic and would be great if that's the way it worked. But, in fact, the opposite occurs. If I've heard once, I've heard 40 times about how People were put in rat-infested hovels uh, all over the United States and left there for months on end when 
the promises made to them was they were going to resettle them in a decent community and ensure their security and make sure they're able to afford a vehicle and a place to live and get a job. When in fact, they would sit in these hotels for months on end. And most of the time they were sitting there because they had no identities. And that's where the things go bad, especially for families, because they have no social security numbers, which means they have no way of getting a job unless they use their own social security number, which would put them in danger if danger existed. I heard so many complaints about having trouble getting their identifications, trouble getting a social security card, trouble having anybody make a reference for them in order to get a job. In other words, making it very, very difficult to uh, exist. I found a letter in my father's trunk. It's dated August 13th, 1983, when we thought he was working on a fishing boat. It's sent from the Men's Correctional Center in New York City, and it's addressed to Gerald Schur, Associate Director, Office of Enforcement Operations, Criminal Division, U.S. Department of Justice. It reads, Mr. Schur, from the beginning, I put the trust and fate of my family in your hands which I was led to believe were very capable and knowledgeable hands. This, sir, is something that I don't believe anymore. I have incurred many enemies who will never stop coming after me, and they are willing to pay any price to get me. So I feel if I don't act with a pen and paper, I will surely be harmed before something is done. But first and foremost is my family. We were relocated in a town that would have been one of the last on my list and were placed in a small motel room. The children couldn't go outside because of the snow and cold as it was below zero degrees most of the time. We were all sick and one child had to go to the hospital. We had no kind of identification, so we couldn't go anywhere for fear of being discovered. There was a limit of six months funding. Worrying what we were gonna do in a strange town with three children and no friends or relatives, we were disillusioned and suffered a great amount of stress. Also, Because of lack of documents, the school officials where my child was enrolled had to be told of our situation by the marshal. This caused me to seek out a doctor because of anxiety. When I went to this doctor, he and his nurse had seen my Hell's Angels tattoos. I expressed to him my concern in keeping my tattoos confidential. His answer to this was, don't worry, I take care of several of you witnesses. Needless to say, that is something that no one should hear. It made us feel very uneasy because we didn't know who else knew of our situation. Then, instead of birth certificates, we got passports, which, as you know, have to be renewed every five years. That would have been acceptable if it were only for me, but what of the children? Let me say to you now, you can't move my family again. Nothing but harm will come from such an attempt. My children have almost got over the shock of such a move, and the loss of their friends and relatives. They learned to accept their new friends and new names. My wife has stated that she will leave the program if any such attempt was made. So just leave them alone. There has been enough damage done. The idea that the families get jerked into this situation is just a travesty. From my experiences of talking to them, from the minute they get into those situations, they are a second-class citizen, and they know it, and they feel hopeless and helpless. And it's a horrible shame, because they didn't do anything. Once they get them into their out-of-way places, they want to wash their hands of them. I could care less about most of these guys who are witnesses, because they're all pieces of shit. But their kids didn't buy that. Their kids didn't bargain for that. And the kids are being the victims of it. Kids get dragged into this program, which has got to be the most traumatic thing they have ever experienced in their lives. And that they don't get counseling early and often is absurd. The wives and the kids are the most vulnerable people on this earth. I think that in a lot of respects, the people in the WITSEC program use the families as leverage against these guys. 
They use them to get whatever they want to get done, whatever convictions they want, and then they shuffle them off to these out-of-the-way places and try to forget about them. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. mother's church my mother's way into the church now she like dove into Jesus which is good for her she's now a retired parish nurse and she's the lady that delivers communion to sick people in the hospital on Sundays and she doesn't want to have anything to do with this documentary she doesn't like to talk about this Um, she just wants to forget it So it's her way of dealing with it. Forget it. It's not my way of dealing with stuff. We're very, very opposite. My mother was very quiet, a very soft-spoken woman back in Ohio and Florida. When we got here, she started to do this thing that my sister and I coined as the bloody murder scream. It was a sound that I didn't know that my mother could make. And the first time I heard it was right after my father left. I remember exactly where she was in the kitchen on Millis Avenue of the very first house that we had gotten into after the motel and I don't even remember what she was mad about but she did this blood curdling scream and we called it the bloody murder scream that screaming that blood curdling bloody murder scream went on and on and on and on and on in my childhood and my mother was now a different woman she had nobody to talk to she just really internalized everything not being able to talk to anybody, and it just manifested itself, and she became very, very, very abusive to primarily me. She screamed, she pulled my hair, she hit me. She hated me. She started hating me. And to this day, she still hates me. I hear it in her voice. I don't know if I remind her of Butch, which I think I do. I know I look a lot like him. I started talking back. I started not putting up with the abuse, and I started fighting back, and I started punching her and kicking her. I threw a pot at her once, a flower pot. I just threw it at her, and she turned her head in it, um, and it broke on her head, and it knocked her to the ground and gave her a concussion. I was fighting back. I was protecting myself. I got pretty abusive to her. Probably a little bit worse than she was to me, but I couldn't control myself at that age. One day in seventh grade, I snapped when the girl pushed me up against my locker. One day, I just couldn't handle it anymore, and something came over me. And I remember hitting her and just getting really violently mad. Something came out of me that I didn't know existed. The little girl that threw rocks at the back of my head. I started following her home 
and throwing rocks at the back of her head. That little girl got a 10-speed bicycle and a Walkman and rode her bike home with her headphones on as fast as she could every day. She never bullied me again. The little girl that stood on her stoop that made fun of me every day when I walked by. I tormented her for the next four or five years and her first day of high school was probably the worst day of her life and I made sure that that was gonna happen. I turned the tables on everybody that ever bullied me. I just had that fucking rage. I had nowhere to put that rage except on people that pissed me off. We were just driving and Jackie notices a car of a girl that she didn't like. And she was like, oh, we should kick the windows in and, you know, slash the tires. And I'm like, no, don't do that. Like, be cool, be cool. This is Lainey, one of my closest friends. And she picked up this giant rock and she just tossed it on the windshield. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Like, she just threw the rock in the windshield and walked on like nothing had happened. I was a little bit scared of her because I didn't know what else she was capable of. I started drinking and then it went to marijuana and then it went to cocaine and then it went to meth. And once I started doing drugs, I didn't stop. I was reckless at that point and I didn't care and I was just being very promiscuous and just doing horrible things to myself. I just didn't care anymore. I didn't, I didn't care. I don't fucking care if I got killed tomorrow, I don't care. It just didn't, it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't care enough about myself anymore. I wish somebody would have grabbed me and, and showed me the right way because nobody ever did. I think she used drugs and alcohol to deal with how she felt about what was going on in her life at the time. You know, not being able to see her dad, not knowing what was going on with with him, not being able to see her family in Cleveland. This is Lucy, another very close friend of mine. There was no control for her in everything that was going on around her. You know, it's that way for a lot of teens, but... For Jackie, it was tenfold. She ended up going to Rivendale, which was a hospital for teens. It was a drug and rehab place. And that was during the summer. We were supposed to go to a Def Leppard concert together, and we already had our tickets. And I had to go without her. And I remember her telling me that she was sitting at the window with the bars on it, and she could hear the music playing from the Metra, where the concert was at. At Rivendell, I was in therapy for the first time in my life. And so I thought maybe this was a place where I could finally talk about everything, about my dad and the Hells Angels and growing up on Witsec. But I was wrong. 99% of the time, my therapist didn't believe me. And then I was forced to take other tests tests on personality disorders or schizophrenia. They thought that I was imagining myself to be somebody that I wasn't, delusions of grandeur. And at that time, I had no proof. In group therapy, when I'm sitting with all the kids and I say, well, I was put on the witness protection program when I was seven, they're kind of looking around the room at each other like, yeah, okay. But I needed to talk about it. When you're a kid, you need to talk and you need to you need to talk to your friends. And I talked a little bit too much and told way too many people. I did believe that her dad was in jail, but I wasn't sure about the whole witness protection part of the story, you know, that she was here because of that. I felt like she was full of shit. I didn't believe the story. It was just a far-fetched story. Like, you know, it's only something you heard in the movies. And to actually hear it, come from someone, maybe they picked it up from the movies, you know, made things up to make us like her better or make us fear her. I don't know. 
just never believed it. It was like, really, you're making this up. Did you watch a show and take this off of a movie? Because it just sounded like something so made up. Like, really? This could never be. You would never think that something like that, that she would have had to have lived through that all of her life. There's really only one person who completely understood what it was like growing up like this. My little sister, Jamie. She's 18 months younger than me. We all went through our issues, like I think when we became teenagers and just struggling, you know, as a teenager, you just normally struggle with identity. And I think with us, it was a hundred times worse just because we kind of felt like we didn't have an identity. When we were told about this, we didn't know, we just didn't know any different. It was our life. You know, we had nothing to compare it to because that's all we've known. And so once we became teenagers and you just start kind of questioning, you know, everything you were raised to believe. And for us, it was just, then we start questioning, you know, our life and our reality and different things, who our father was. I struggled a lot with the whole kind of, I guess, nature versus nurture thing. Like, is this who I am? Am I predisposed to be a bad person? My mother used to say that my father had bad blood. Well, I knew that half of his blood was running through my veins, and I used to cut myself to see if I bled black, because I thought bad blood was black blood. My mother signed me over to the state when I was 15 years old. I had been in and out of different facilities, and I think she just didn't want to pay for them. Um, She didn't know what to do. I think she was kind of at her wit's end. And I was signed over to the state. I ended up in a group home for girls, which is basically an orphanage. My sweet 16th birthday was in the group home. And I spent close to a year there. That's probably the height of my depression. And I've been on my own ever since, which is kind of how I feel like I've kind of been on my own since I came to Montana. This is when I became obsessed with trying to find out anything I could about my dad. I think it was a coping mechanism. I felt like if I could know more about him, I'd understand more about myself. So I started doing research. This was before Google before the internet, really. So I spent a lot of time at the library. And during one of those visits, I made a breakthrough. I found some articles through the News Herald in Cleveland, and I was actually able to do an interlibrary loan for microfiche, and I found a bunch of articles on my father, and I read them over and over and over and over and over. There was a small little paragraph that I found in one of the articles. And I see this little sentence that says that his wife and children are under federal custody. That was huge to me because that's what I needed because it was proof that I was on the witness protection program. At that age, I had no proof, nothing. There was no documented evidence corroborating my story. And I was so happy I had that little paragraph. Now now I know I'm not crazy and I can prove to everybody else that I'm not crazy, even though it's one little paragraph. It was something in writing. It was something that I could show people now and say, see, I wasn't lying. And I felt like I won some big, huge battle of trying to find out who the fuck I was. But then there's all the other shit. There's all the other shit that he did. I never knew anything about him. I mean, you know, I didn't know his lifestyle. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know all of the murders, all everything, the things I I had no idea. I found that all out through the paper. And that just turned my stomach. I was really embarrassed that that was my father and the hate started coming and that opened the door for another monster within me to come out and that monster was hatred for my father. I could feel it rising up 
within me and I started having horrible, horrible fantasies about what I wanted to do to my father. And I just wanted to find out where he was. And I wanted to kill him. What good's a man? On the next episode of Relative Unknown. And I, Butch, would you uh, be sworn at this time? The evidence you give in this sharing should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Yes. Butch testifies in front of the United States Senate. We pulled up and stopped, and the machine gun opened up, and I started shooting. In explosive fashion. Do you know of any hell's angels that have turned against the rock stars? It's one incident that I'm aware of that happened uh, over a killing at a concert. It's Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. It's from the Altamont thing. One charter. Can I tell us more about the attempts on his life? I feel the change on the. Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor, Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown. I feel a change on the rise. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.